I read a story about a man who lived in Phoenix, and the day before Thanksgiving, he called his son who lived in New York City, and he told him, son, I'm sorry to have to tell you this over the phone, I'm sorry to ruin your holiday, but your mother and I are getting a divorce. Forty-five years is just long enough. We can't stand each other. I can't spend another 45 seconds with this woman. And I, I hate to tell you like this, but I, I just, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Could you call your sister who lives in Chicago and tell her? So frantic, the son called his sister and she just exploded. She said, oh no, they're not getting a divorce. You hold on. She hung up. She called her father and she said, you are not getting a divorce. You wait until I get there. Don't do anything. I'm calling my brother back. We'll be there tomorrow, but don't do anything until we get there. Man hung up the phone. He turned to his wife. He said, all right, honey, both the kids are coming for Thanksgiving and they're even paying for their own flights. <laughs> Rita told me before we started that uh, today is National LOL Day, so I hope that was sufficient. That's the only joke I have baked into today's uh, sermon. If I'd known, I might have prepared more. Sometimes people will go to extraordinary lengths to try to accomplish their purposes, just like that. I think of people, for example, who throw surprise parties and uh, all of the intricate planning that goes into that to make sure that the guest or guest of honor doesn't catch on to what's going on in advance. And of course, to those who are involved in events like that, they can turn out to be really special memories. And I mention that this morning because I'm anticipating a special event too. Jesus talked about it on the last night of his life before his arrest and his crucifixion. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. In fact, he had spent weeks before telling his apostles precisely about it, that he had to go to Jerusalem, He'd suffer many things at the hands of his enemies, and eventually he'd be killed. But on the third day, he'd rise again. But somehow, in spite of all of that preparation, it just didn't sink into them. They couldn't believe that this was going to happen to their Lord, their Master, their Messiah. And so in this last night, gathered together in the upper room, Jesus told them plainly, his time had come. One of them, in fact, would betray him. He even said, you all will fall away. And that's when Peter spoke up and said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered him and said, Peter, I say to you that before the rooster crows this day, you'll deny me three times. We can only imagine the bewilderment, the confusion, the gloom that must have settled over that room at that moment. And that's when Jesus began to speak some of the most familiar and hopeful and comforting words in all of Scripture. John chapter 14 and verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, 
believe in me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You hear that promise? We've talked in recent weeks about Jesus' resurrection and the appearances he made subsequent to that. We talked last week about his ascension. But right here we have the rest of the story of that promise. Jesus is coming again. After his resurrection, he spent 40 days with his apostles, further instructing them. And at the end of that, at his ascension, angels repeated that promise. Uh, he meets with them on the Mount of Olives for the last time, and we read this text last week, but we didn't focus on this promise, so we'll reiterate it here, Acts chapter 1. When they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's true. Jesus is coming back. Years later, the Apostle Paul would write about this, and he writes about it at great length in both the first and the second Thessalonian letters. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's been said that the entire overarching narrative, the big story of Scripture, can be summed up in terms of the life of Christ. The books of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, all proclaim Jesus is coming. The four gospel accounts say to us, Jesus is here. And then the remaining 23 books of the New Testament tell us, Jesus is coming back. It's true. 
In fact, one out of every 30 verses in all of the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back or relates to the end time in general. He's coming again. And when he does, some will rejoice and some will be terrified. Paul tells us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. Now that might be sudden, it might be surprising. But for the Christian, that won't be a frightening experience. That'll be exciting. It'll be a time of joy. It'll be like the long-awaited arrival of a friend that we've been looking for. Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17, we read it a moment ago, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Does that excite you? If you're a Christian, it should. But that day won't be a day of excitement for everyone. But because there's a long-standing principle in Scripture. Paul talks about it. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that will he also reap. Those who are sowing to the flesh will harvest corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. We're all sowing throughout our lives, constantly sowing. We don't have a choice about that, either to the Spirit or to the flesh. And one day, we can be sure, we'll reap the harvest that we've sown. Today, someone can just pretend to be part of God's people, even if they're not really committed, not really convicted, just by blending in, just by going through the motions. No one notices as long as you're going to the right places, as long as you say the right things, as long as you associate with the right sorts of people. But one day, we won't be able to just go through the motions. One day we won't be able to hide who we really are anymore. There will come a day when you and I, all of us, face a reckoning. We'll stand before God. We'll give an account of our lives and our decisions and our relationship with Jesus or our lack of a relationship with Him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us that this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
Some will rejoice, but some will be terrified because at that moment, Paul writes about the Lord will be revealed and they'll realize that it's too late. It's everlastingly too late. They gambled with their lives and they lost. God allows us the freedom to make our own choices. He doesn't want involuntary slavery. He instead wants people to serve Him, to submit to Him out of love, out of gratitude for what He's done for them. But one day, we won't have a choice anymore. We'll submit to Him whether we want to or not. And for Christians, that should be a day of hope, a day of excitement, a day that we're looking forward to. But it also reminds us that we have a responsibility to tell others, to warn them, to try to make sure that they're ready before it's too late. For centuries, there have been predictions and guesses concerning the second coming of Christ, all the way back to the earliest centuries of the church. There was a great uh, millennium fever that gripped everyone about the year 1000. Everyone thought he was coming back then. Or we might think about movements like the one in this country in the 19th century, William Miller in the 1840s and his predictions of the return of Jesus. Of course, he didn't come. That spawned the Seventh-day Adventists. Or I remember even just a few years ago, there was a fellow, his organization rented out billboards all over the country proclaiming that Jesus was coming back on May 21st, 2012. Of course, he didn't. Although then he said, well, he came, but he came in secret. He's coming openly then in about six months. And you probably noticed he didn't then either. And that fellow was still revising his predictions again when he passed away at the end of that year. The Lord tells us instead that no one knows the day or the hour when he'll return. And that means we need to think of it as imminent in the sense that it might always be ready to occur. It might be today. I might not finish with this sermon. I might not get a chance to stand up here this evening and to talk to you. Or it might be this week or it might be this month, or this year, or it might not happen while any of us here in this room today are alive. We just don't know. Paul compares his sudden return to the birth pangs of an expectant mother. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. God is eager to forgive. And because of that, out of his patience, his divine forbearance, he continues to allow people an opportunity to repent and to come back to him. But one day, his patience will be replaced by justice. Time will run out. History will come to an end. Evil will be punished. 
The first time Christ came in love, and he was rejected. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But when he comes back again, it'll be in power as the triumphant king. And no one will have an opportunity to reject him then. He won't have to say anything. He won't have to do anything at that moment because everyone will see him and they'll know. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, whether they wanted to in this life or not. That is the goal, the endpoint to which all of history is inexorably moving. In the main reading room of the Library of Congress, above the figure that represents history, there is inscribed the words from Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam, one God, one law, one element, and one far-off divine event toward which the whole creation moves. We must be prepared because Jesus is coming again. May 1845, two Royal Navy ships, you see one of them pictured here, the HMS Terror, the HMS Erebus, departed from London with a very important mission. They were to voyage to the Arctic and to try to find the last bit of passageway of the Northwest Passage through Canada there, connecting the Atlantic to the North there to the Pacific. They carried with them the latest technology. Uh, their engines were powered by coal with a, a screw that would control or propel their locomotion. And the hope was that this would be a turning point in Arctic exploration and that at last they could take goods, trade that direction, rather than taking that longer route and a dangerous route around Cape Hope south in Africa. It was a risky trip. There were hostile conditions, obviously. There was unfamiliar technology. They were beyond the reach of any sort of immediate rescue party. One writer's compared this to a Victorian-era moon landing. That gives us an idea of just how difficult it was. If men or supplies or technology or leadership failed, then the results would be catastrophic. Well, unfortunately, there was failure on all counts. In July of 1845, the two ships departed from Baffin Bay in southwest of Greenland, and they were never seen again. The ships were poorly equipped from the start. They didn't have enough fuel to make the journey. The food rations were ordered at the very last minute, and they were packed in tin cans that were uh, poorly soldered so that they started to leach lead into the food supply and spoil it, poison it. The lemon juice supply that every Royal Navy ship carried on board to ward off scurvy became contaminated. And so they boiled the lemon juice, which you might think is smart, except that kills the ascorbic acid in lemon juice, the very thing that prevents scurvy. They brought fine-looking standard-issue uniforms, but no Arctic gear. 
But you should note what this expedition did have. They had a 1,000 volume library. They had a hand organ. They had fine china to serve dinner to all of the officers. They had cut glass crystal. They had sterling silver flatware. But they had insufficient fuel and food and supplies. Well, the ships became prey to tidal movements in the ice. They couldn't power themselves anymore. They were at the mercy of the currents of the ocean. The crew ran short of supplies, and many of them became desperately ill with pneumonia, with tuberculosis, nourishment. Eventually, the leader of the expedition, Sir John Franklin, an Arctic veteran who should have known better, he died. And so some of the survivors tried to strike out across the ice on land, making way for a Hudson's Bay trading post hundreds of miles to the south. The outcome of the expedition was inevitable. These two ships, ill-equipped, unprepared, sailed into frigid waters. Native Inuits reported later seeing men dragging a wooden boat across the ice. Thirty-five men were later found in a boat, dead. Another group of natives found 30 other men frozen to death in a tent on the ice. At the end, according to native reports, the men resorted to cannibalism, which subsequent archaeological finds have confirmed. They finally found the two ships at last in 2014. It's a horrible loss of life. 129 men, no survivors. The greatest disaster in all of Arctic exploration. And it's astounding that men would embark on that sort of journey so ill-prepared. More like they were going for afternoon tea than they were going to explore the Arctic. And yet, and yet, we so often are guilty of that very same thing. Just like Franklin's expedition, we act as if life were just a pleasure cruise. We have no fuel, but we have lots of entertainment. We're more concerned with looking good than we are with being prepared. We don't know exactly where it is that we're going, but we have lots of china and crystal and silver along the way. If we don't reach our destination, if we sail unprepared, it's not God's fault. He's given us instructions. His word is our map. His spirit is our compass. He's told us the way that we need to go. He's pointed out for us the landmarks that need to guide us along the way. And someday, if we follow Him, we'll hear the Lord say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But unfortunately, there will be many who are treating life as a pleasure cruise. and They don't prepare to reach the destination. And one day they're in for a rude awakening because they've chosen to follow that broad, easy path that leads to destruction.
We come here together today with news that I, I hope is wonderful. It's hopeful for us. Jesus is coming back. And we should, as Christians, look forward to that with anticipation. I don't know if he's going to come back while we're still here on this earth and we're going to go to meet him in the air, or if we're going to pass from this life and go to meet him that way. But whatever the case may be, I want to be ready. And I pray that everyone here this morning is ready too. That's the purpose of our message this morning. Not one of doom and gloom, but of hope and excitement and expectation and happiness. I don't want to hear those words, depart from me. I never knew you. I want to be ready. I want to be part of his family. Do you? Are you? That's the question we all need to ask ourselves this morning. If Christ were to come back, are you ready? Are you prepared to meet your God? If not, I want to encourage you to make those preparations this morning. Put your faith, your trust in Jesus. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried in the waters of baptism and have your sins washed away and be added to God's people. Embark on that journey that God has laid out for you. If you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, maybe you started on that way, but you've found that you've, you've faltered along your journey. Maybe you need to make changes this, way, this morning in a public way in order to make sure that you're prepared. Whatever your need may be, whatever your situation may be, if we can help you in any way, I want to encourage you to make your need known now while we stand and sing.